Well, good morning. And uh, grandson sends uh, his greetings. Uh, I, I got one more follow-up text this morning on the way here to remind me to greet you and to greet the church. And uh, you are, of course, very dear to us in many ways, and we pray for this church regularly. This morning I want to look at the subject of repentance. And uh, as a, I'll open it up in a moment, uh, looking at uh, Mark chapter 1, just as an introduction. But before we do, let's uh, seek God's help in prayer. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we come to you with a sense and a knowledge that handling your word is a fool's errand unless you come and help by the Holy Spirit. And we don't presume upon you, but we appeal to you that you would draw near to us and help us Help us to handle your word aright and the speaking and the hearing of it. And Lord, we ask that you would do us good. You know that we are needy souls. Come and help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we have two gospel essentials that we want to look at today. The first is repentance and the second is faith. And uh, we just want to read from Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, uh, briefly. And I'll explain why. In a moment, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John came baptizing in the wilderness and preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And then if we look down further, well, actually, I'm just going to read this. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And I, I start with this because I think it's important to see why, why we would preach repentance at all in some senses. Mark says that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ begins with John, the messenger sent to prepare the way, and he was preaching repentance. And then the one he's proclaiming comes, and he says, um, it says he's proclaiming the gospel, the kingdom of God, and he starts with repent and believe. And I think we're being told something there, that repentance is to the heart the opening that faith might come in, in a sense. Now, we know that they happen so closely together that we can't really divide them, but we divide them to understand it. J.C. Ryle said this, Two things are absolutely necessary to the salvation of every one of us. We must repent, and we must believe the gospel. Without repentance toward God and faith towards our Lord Jesus Christ, no one can be saved. So that tells us why re preaching repentance is important. So we're going to look at this crucial subject of repentance this morning. Now, so essential is this topic of repentance that our confession of faith says in chapter 15, God has made full provision through Christ in the covenant of grace to preserve believers in their salvation. Thus, although there is no sin so small that it is undeserving of damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it will bring damnation on those who repent. This makes the constant preaching 
of repentance necessary. And I think they have it just right on there. So our passage for today is going to be Luke chapter 13, and the first five verses, and I'd ask you to turn there in your Bibles. Luke chapter 13, I'll read it first. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So we'll look at this topic of repentance under the headings of of the context that this passage comes to us in, a clarifying question that the Lord Jesus asks, his startling response, and then a glimmer of hope and, uh, Lord willing, some practical use of these truths. So for the context, I'm going to read from Luke chapter 12, some verses, quite a number of verses, but not the whole chapter. And this will give us a good sense of why Jesus is addressing this topic. So Luke 12, beginning in verse 1. In the meantime, when an innumerable multitude of people had gathered together so that they trampled one another, he began to say to his disciples, first of all, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have spoken in the dark will be heard in the light, and what you have spoken in the ear in inner rooms will be proclaimed on the housetops. Verse 4, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who after he has killed has power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Are not five sparrows, verse 6, are not five sparrows sold for two copper coins, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, Him the Son of Man will confess before the angels of God. But he who denies me before men, I will will be denied before the angels of God. And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But to him who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. Do not fear, little flock, verse 32. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves money bags which do not grow old, a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In verse 49, I came to send a fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you not at all, but rather division. For from now on, 
Five and one house will be divided, three against two and two against three. Father will be divided against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So what does this context say? Just briefly, we see the timing in these verses. It was a time when many were coming to the Lord Jesus. Many are coming to hear what he's saying, to see what he's doing, to see the, the wonderful signs he, that's going on. And, but the Lord Jesus is going to speak about an issue that's really important, and he's not going to worry about whether or not it scatters the crowd or not. He's going to say what they need to hear. It's in a context where he's warning against hypocrisy and that which is not true and sincere towards God. It's a dangerous time. He's warning them that there may be bodily harm that will come to them, maybe at the hands of wicked men, maybe from other sources, but it's in the context of them being in, in great danger in which he tells them, don't fear men, don't fear the things that could cast you into the grave, but fear God, who after he casts you into the grave can cast you into hell. So it's in this context that he's talking about these things. He does also warn about the unpardonable sin which is blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And the context as well. There's the aspect of his coming as the Prince of Peace, but he says he's bringing division and not peace entirely. The gospel does divide between those who believe and those who will not believe. And he, this is the background of what we're talking about. So in, the, in light of this context, then Luke 13 comes as, again, still within context, but it's the beginning of our verses. Luke 13, 1, there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So all that Jesus is going to say as it relates to repentance comes in the context of all this going on and those that are coming to him challenging him, don't you know what's happened over here and what, what has happened to those who were put to death? Well, Jesus does know and he's going to address it. And as we look at his clarifying question, we'll, we'll look at this next. So we already have seen there, there were present at that season those who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled. So what does Jesus ask them? He answered them and said, Do you suppose that the Gal these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? You see, they come telling him a story. And it's hard to know exactly what their motives are, but he's going to address this in a different way. He, he wants to get to the heart of the matter. Do, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners? And uh, so in verse 1 and 2, we have this. Um, now think about the Galileans that are, that are put to death. These are religious Galileans. They're in the middle of their sacrifices. It's in the context of worshiping God that their blood is spilled. And Jesus asks the question then, were these who are in the midst of their sacrifices worse than everybody else? Now Pilate was no friend of the Jews, but he, he profaned the sacrifice uh, by killing them right at the altar. And so Jesus might be saying to them in a sense, you're coming to me in amazement. You're saying to me, look at what's happened. These have died in the middle of their worship. And he's asking them to put it in perspective now. Don't look at them. Were these, the real question is not, 
Why did they die? How evil is it that they died? The question is, were they worse than anybody else? Are they deserving of what they got? That's the implied question. And Jesus is going to answer them no. He's going to say that they're all sinners. He, he does not say, by the way, um, were these Galileans sinners? That would be a question he might have asked, which would have been true. But he asks the question, were they worse sinners? Were they more deserving of what they got than other people? And he says no, emphatically, that's not the case. So he, just, he asks the questions, were they worse sinners? And this is the way men think, right? We like to compare ourselves against men, not against God, not against his standard. Men like to compare themselves against other men. But Jesus is not going to let that happen. He challenges them. Are they worse? So, um, now in verse 4, we have this repeated, but now Jesus will raise up the, uh, the, uh, the event, the current event that went on. So they come telling him about those who were murdered in their sacrifice. So Jesus said, hey, how about the 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. How about them? Do you think they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? You see, Jesus brings up this other well-known story. He wants, he, he kind of demonstrates for us that while he's about his father's business, he's not ignorant about the events in the world around him. He's aware of what's going on, even though he maintains his focus on the ministry. Well, the first case seems to have been a hateful act of a malignant ruler, right? They were murdered in the middle of their sacrifice, but the second one is what the world might call a freak accident. Now, we know as those who trust God and know that he ordains whatsoever comes to pass, there is no such thing as a freak accident, but it is an event that there's no no uh, explanation for the tower just collapses and killed those. But he brings this up to them, and he applies the same moral uh, rationale to them as he did to the others. Um, he wants to know again, were they worse sinners? So we have that pattern. An amazing event, let's put it in perspective, were they really worse sinners than all others in Jerusalem? Now the answer here. Uh, to the two clarifying questions will be very informative and very challenging. So there, the question is implied from the people. Does their suffering and death prove their spiritual condition? I think that's what the askers are, are looking at. It certainly seems to be what Jesus is replying to. In verse 2, he says, because they suffered such things, right? Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all Galileans because they suffered such things? You see what he's doing? He's answering their question, Is their spiritual condition evidenced by what happened to them? And then again in verse 4, Of those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men in Jerusalem? So there's this implied question is the calamity that befell them because of their spiritual condition uniquely above and beyond that of other men? The reality is that we cannot judge the spiritual condition of a man because of the conditions he meets with. What may be God's judgment for one man, may be a fatherly chastisement for another, or it could simply be God designing an event to glorify himself. So we have examples of this in the scriptures. 
So what is Jesus aiming at? What is his point in this? He's teaching a very, very profound and important truth. He does not want us to be engaged as the Athenians were in just hearing uh, some, you know, as it says, spent their time in nothing else than either to hear or to tell something new. He doesn't want that. He, that's not profitable to us. We can talk about all of the COVID deaths and all of the terrorism deaths and all the murders and, and all of the various things that go on in the world around us. And if we just talk about it, it's just chatter, it's idle, it's counterproductive. Jesus does not want us to do this, but he rather wants us to take the events that we hear of in the world around us and use them as an opportunity for self-examination, careful self-examination. He does not only want us to mind the things of this world as good stewards ought to do, but he wants us to be especially to meditate and to muse and to contemplate on heavenly things. J.C. Ryle says this, The death of the Galileans mentioned here were probably a common subject of conversation in Jerusalem and all Judea. We can well believe that all the circumstances and particulars belonging to it were continually discussed by thousands who never thought of their, their own latter end. It is just the same in the present day. A murder, a sudden death, a shipwreck, or a railway accident will completely occupy the minds of a neighborhood um, and be in the mouth of everyone you meet. And yet these very persons dislike talking of their own deaths and their own prospects in the world beyond the grave. Such is human nature in every age. In religion, men are ready to talk about anybody's business except their own. The state of our own souls should always be our first concern. He concludes by saying it is eminently true that real Christianity will always begin at home. So Jesus is in a moment going to give us a startling response to these questions. But we just need to think for a moment. His hearers... They were hoping and expecting a yes. In other words, when he asks them, do you think these are all worse sinners than everybody else? The crowd wants to hear yes. They want to hear that it's, you know, because they're worse. They got what they deserve. Pity on them, but good for me. So they have an expectation that they want to hear this yes because they don't want what happened to the others to happen to them. But Jesus has a startling response, and there's three parts to this. But the first part of it is simply no. He says, I tell you no. And by the way, he says that with authority. Right? It's not just no, not just opinion, but Jesus said, I tell you no. And I think that's important that he says it that way. He emphatically states that we are no better than those in the two accounts that suffered so much. You see, he wants us to consider this. Jesus removes any basis, any grounds to be self-confident about any supposed righteousness or supposed safety. How can we be confident or safe if we were not better than those who died in their sacrifices or who died when a tower falls upon them? If we're not better than them, how can we expect on any rational basis to say we have a better lot than they will have? All right. His response to me seems even more startling because these incidents happened in Galilee and Jerusalem. Those who died and were presumed to have been judged were not greater sinners than the rest of the inhabitants, as we've already said. Perhaps it's meant to startle his hearers. 
After all, Jesus was from Nazareth of Galilee, right? And is not Jerusalem the holy city? So these events come at a peculiarly important time and place. What Jesus is saying in essence is this. No, you've got it all wrong. They're not worse sinners. And again, he'll go on to to further develop his response. But this is very important. We can just stop and think about it now. If it applied to all of his hearers then, it applies to all of us now. Are we safe because we're better than somebody else? Better than some mass murderer? Better than some, somebody that we know is a cheat and a scoundrel? The answer is no. And he goes on with his response now, and he gets, begins to get it very, very personal here. First, it's no. Flat out, it's not true. But then he turns and he says, unless you repent, you see. And when he says you, he's bringing it really home. He's bringing it home to every heart that hears him or hears his word. You need to repent. It's a conditional statement. There's this unless you. So there is danger here, and the conditional statement makes us aware of it. That is to say there's a certain action that is absolutely essential, and that is repentance. Now, I'll just stop parenthetically for a moment. I'm not suggesting that any act of repentance will save you. That, of course, cannot be true. It's nevertheless required by God. This requirement he introduces is urgent and has eternal consequences. So it's not just a a temporary thing. It's not just, oh, I need to do this today. Things will be better if I do it. This is long-term, eternal importance that he has. The conditional statement calls for and demands a response. It's a call to action to everyone who hears. Repentance is not, not optional, but required. And we're going to look at the, the uh, nature of repentance shortly. But then the third aspect of his answer, so we have no, then we have the personal and conditional unless you repent, and then we have the third section, which is the warning part of his answer. You will all likewise perish. You see, there's great weight and gravity to his words. It's a dire warning. It's harsh. The prediction is harsh and it's clear. If the call to repent or to repentance is ignored, there will be consequences. Now, repentance is not a popular subject in our day, nor is the talking about sin. But the Lord Jesus says it's important, and he brought it up, and so we will continue with it. But there are consequences. Failing to respond in, in, in obedience and faith, we'll ignore the call coming in, uh, will, will be meeting with perishing, right? So he's not simply talking about our breathing our last, right? Because we, we could get into this mold where we say, well, you know, Jesus says unless we repent, we'll, we'll die. Everyone's going to die. What's the point of repenting, right? There's a, a logic that could run that way. But he can't be talking about that. That's not what he's saying. Because we cannot reasonably assume that if we repent, we won't go to the grave. Otherwise, there'd be people walking around the earth. They'd be hundreds and hundreds of years old, right? Because somebody would have repented since Jesus gave this, this speech, as it were. So that's not what he's talking about. It. So what is he talking about here? We can get a taste of it here from what, John, what Jesus says to Martha in, in John chapter 11. Uh, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. 
And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? You see, that's the context. So what is Jesus saying there? Well, he's saying, if you believe me, you won't die eternally. You you won't die, but if you do die and go to the grave, take heart. I am the resurrection. You will live again. So he's making a distinction now between the grave and eternal life. And that's precisely the point here. When he's warning about perishing, he's not warning about dying and having a funeral service. And people say all those lies or nice things about you, right? That, that's not the point. He's saying there's something worse to, be, to look at, okay? So that, we need to keep that in mind as we think about his response here. All right? He's warning about eternal death, separation from God, judgment, torment, all of these things. But let's look at the the, uh, nature of repentance. First of all, we know from Acts 11 and verse 18 that repentance is a grace given in regeneration. It says there, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now I already said you cannot repent and earn salvation And yet the word of God also says there's a repentance unto life that is combined with faith that is critically important. But it is a grace. It says God has granted. Repentance does not happen because we reach down and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we turn over a new leaf and do a new thing. Repentance comes from God by the Spirit and it's a gift. Secondly, it is first and foremost an action of the heart And I don't have the quote here. I somehow lost it, but I'm going to refer to it anyway. Spurgeon refers to a broken and a contrite heart, something along these lines. He says, the heart is like a vessel. The vessel is very precious. And men look at a vessel that's precious when it's intact and it has no mars. If you had, you know, uh, Antiques Roadshow, they'd look at whether or not there's anything wrong with it, right? But in this case, when you're talking about the heart, Spurgeon says God looks at this vessel and it contains things either putrefying or things good. And the only way it has value is when it's shattered and its contents come out to the light of day. And then the one who has the putrefying thing in his heart goes to God. Again, it's a really weak paraphrase, but that's the idea of the broken heart. It's the heart that's so broken that what is inside comes out transparently before God in repentance. But genuine repentance is radical. It touches everything. It it touches the way we think, the way we act, the way we speak. It touches things that are in our way back in our past. So repentance that is genuine, that God is working in the heart, touches every part of our being in all things. And it is more than guilt or even sorrow over sin, right? We We could have a sense of guilt and not be repenting. We could even be sorrowful over sin and not be repenting, right? We could see this most of all with our kids or our grandkids. They did something they know is wrong, and you can see they feel bad. And you might even see tears, and you might see sorrow over it, but if you got right down to the heart of it, are they repenting because they've offended God, or are they sorrowful and feeling guilty because they know what's coming, and they've got to deal with the one that they've offended? So it is more than guilt, it's more than sorrow. It's more than even acknowledging our wrong or apologizing for wrong. Now, we ought to apologize when we've wronged somebody, but we ought not to think that that's repentance necessarily. 
we offend one of the brethren. We say something harsh or hard against them. And then we say, brother, I'm sorry. But did we repent? That's the question. It's not necessarily the same. All right, some elements of repentance. There's the conviction of guilt or shame, right? And in our day, there's no such thing as shame, right? The only place you're going to find shame is amongst the people of God and in the Word of God. Because in our world, the worse you are as a sinner, the more you get to brag about it, demand upon your rights, and be militant about it. But in God's economy, when you sin, there's guilt, there's shame, there's brokenness. In repentance, there is an agreement with God regarding His holy word, His holy law, and His righteous judgments. In repentance, we no longer are at enmity against God, but we side with God even against ourselves. Godly sorrow over sin um, has a matter of motives. Now, we could think about Esau, and uh, just a little bit here from Hebrews chapter 12, and I don't want to read the whole thing for length of time, but he says there, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You see, his motives were all about what he could get, and not about what he had done, and who he had offended. And so that's his motives were wrong. Or like Judas, right? Judas Iscariot, after he had he betrayed our Lord, he went out, he took the money, he threw it down at their feet, and he went and hung himself. He's, he's upset, he's sorrowful, but there's no repentance in Judas. Because he goes from one sin to another sin and never acknowledges his being wrong before God. All right. In, in true repentance... There is a self-abhorrence or self-loathing over sin. This is important. There's no bragging about sin. There's no laughing about it. There's no kind of holding it in our hearts like it's a cute, darling little uh, child or grandchild. We loathe it. We hate it. Confession of sin, there's an appeal for forgiveness. So we confess our sins and we apply to God for forgiveness. That is all bound up in true repentance. There's a turning away from the sin and a turning to God. Action in both cases. It's not just idle. There's activity there, right? There's a renewed determination and effort and appeals for grace to mortify sin. Think about Zacchaeus as we see it in Luke chapter 19. Then Zacchaeus uh, stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation I restore fourfold. And you see his repentance here. He says, I, I've done wrong and I'm going to now give all of the stuff that I was so greedy to pull into myself, that I was so covetous to take, that I thought would make me full and I'm giving half of it all away to those who are in need. And, and, and I know I've wronged some people and in those cases I'm going to go and not just make it up, but I'm going to lavish on them more than I took from them. You see, he's got a heart of repentance here. That's kind of what it looks like as we talk about this. All right. We could look at Job as an example as well. We remember Job as it starts out. He's got the testimony of God that Job was upright, blameless, and turning away from evil all of his days. Right? He's, he's got this great testimony. But when we get to Job 42, there's a different picture here of Job. 
Job has had all the trials. We know all, all that stuff that's come over him wave after wave. He's had interactions with false counselors, and then God has come to him. And now Job is going to have an opportunity to repent. Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? So there's, there's God's charge. He's asking the question, who's guilty of this? And Job's reply, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. There's the confession. You're right, Lord. I spoke what I ought not to have spoken. I'm guilty, right? That's what's going on here. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. And Job's answer, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear. That's his past experience in life. He'd heard about God. He served God based on what he had heard. But I've heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. And this is important because this gets really at the root of repentance. Now my eye sees you, therefore I abhor myself. You see, Job now sees God in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his justice, and he sees himself as a pathetic, sinful creature who has not done wisely. Therefore, I abhor myself. I hate myself. I loathe myself in those things wherein I have offended you and repent in dust and ashes. So Job is an excellent example for us of repentance. And we can see King David in Psalm 32. Blessed or happy is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's the end state of repentance. But before that, uh, he says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Great blessings out of repentance. But then he says, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. So here's the point. David sins. David covers his sin. He's silent about his sin. He doesn't repent. And God's hand is upon David. It's very hard. David had been like a garden, a well-watered, well-tended garden that was lush and green and fruitful, even one perhaps that God delighted in. But David sinned, and he did not turn and repent. And God put his hand upon David and withheld the water. And the garden started shriveling up, and David's bones became dry. His vitality, his very life was being sucked out of him because of his lack of repentance. And then he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, right? Now there's a turning. I acknowledge my sin to you, and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. What a beautiful picture. David's repentance is remarkable here. All right, so what does repentance look like? Again, we could go to Psalm 51, which I'm going to turn there real quickly. I have that printed in my note. Psalm 51. I'm going to read the first 17 verses without too much comment, but it's still a very good picture. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight 
that you may be justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part you will make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones which you, the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So that is a a very good look at repentance. Well, what we could ask the question then, what must be repented of, right? Well, we should repent of all known sins. We should repent of the secret sins. Perhaps these are the ones that we know about, but nobody else knows about. Our wife or our husband sitting next to us doesn't know what's gone on in our heart. They haven't seen what has gone in through our eye gates or in through our ear gates. They haven't, these sins are secret between us and God. They need to be repented of. We need to repent of sins remembered long ago. And I don't know if I'm the only one in the room that has this experience. But sometimes I'll be in a place and I'll hear a sound or smell something or something triggers a memory that I wish didn't come to me. But it was sin and I still go to God with it. I think we need to do that. When we remember sins, we need to confess them. We need to, whatever is not of faith is sin, right? So if we do something and it's not in faith, whatever else, anybody else thinks about it, and whether or not it's defined as sin, if it's not of faith, it is sin. I had had an interesting conversation with somebody about this recently, kind of challenging me, saying, is that really true? Yes, well, the scripture says it's true, but I think the reason it's true is because if we're willing to do something that we don't think we can do before God, it says that in our hearts we disregarded God, and therefore we ought to repent. I think that's the sense of it. We need to confess sins of omission, right? Not just the things we've done, but what about God's commands to us? What about the things that we know are duties before God that we have in the church, in our home, in the nation, before our neighbors? And we just simply don't do it. We need to repent. We need to own that before God. Or again, we've already spoken of sins of commission. We need to repent of evil or dark dreams, right? Now, It's not true that every temptation is a sin, right? Temptation is temptation, sin is sin. What we do with temptation will determine if it's sin or not. But if we're harboring dark dreams, evil thoughts, we need to confess them. If it's not actually sin, we still need to mortify it and flee from it. But if it crosses the line, it's sin, we definitely need to repent. Whatever is not holy or does not glorify God, we need to repent of. Now, I have found it helpful in reading the scriptures 
to read the scriptures thinking in terms of, is this passage something I'm guilty of? And examining my heart and praying about that. You know, not just reading the scriptures, well, oh, look at that terrible thing that guy did. Can you, I can't believe they did that. I would never. No, no, I think we ought to hold the scriptures and read them and say, Lord, what about me? Am I guilty of this? So as we think about this, you know, things to repent of, evil words and thoughts and deeds and attitudes and imaginations, desires. I recommend reading uh, through, this is a list I think on the handouts, but Galatians 5, 19 to 21, Ephesians 5, 3 to 7, 1 Corinthians 6, 8 to 11, Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8, Revelation 22, 14 and 15, the entire book of Proverbs, of course, Exodus 20, and others. But I'd recommend reading these with the eye towards examining yourself in the light of what those texts say. Well, up to this point now, it's all been pretty heavy. It's been pretty dark. There's, you know, there's been death. There's been the question of judgment, the question of, you know, the need to repent, etc. The Lord doesn't just leave us there with this heaviness. In the midst of his words... There is a glimmer of hope, right? Let me go back to um, this passage again, Luke 13, verses 1 to 5, right? Um, He says in verse 3, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And in verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise perish. So where is the glimmer of hope in this? It's in the little words, unless, right? Unless you repent. So what, what he's saying here is you're in your sin. Sin deserves judgment. These we've spoken about have died and been judged. You will perish unless you sin. So he's holding out here a great hope. In other words, he's not saying you've sinned, you will die, you will perish, it's over. He's giving an opportunity for them to turn. It's great hope. This word unless, there's great hope in there. So the Lord Jesus in speaking here, though it's a strong message and it's a harsh message in some ways, being sober and fearful in the warning, it's still filled with joy and grace. Right? I I believe that many times in the scriptures when we see the strongest warnings, those warnings are the strongest evidences of grace. And I think we need to be careful about that. So the logic is if you do not repent, you'll die. But then you have to ask the question, well, what if I do repent, right? The Lord Jesus who came to seek and to save the lost is throwing out a lifeline. He's bidding us to repent and live. We must not continue to love sin more than life. Sin is a soul-destroying and wrath-inviting act of folly. 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that was, of course, written to believers, right? So there's the what if, there's the, the glimmer of hope. But a second aspect of it, the benefits in the benefits of repentance, you have forgiveness. Proverbs 28.13, he who covers his sins will not prosper. Not just in this life, by the way, but eternally. But whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. You see, there is mercy where there's, forgive, where there's repentance. Cleansing in 1 John 1, 8 to 10. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And by the way, that's a great truth for some of our, our, those who profess to be brethren who say they've gotten to a point where they no longer sin. According to God's word, that's not true. If we confess, if, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, not the people we're talking to, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, right, here we go. If we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Of course, he's faithful and just because Christ has paid for the sins of his people. And if we confess our sins, indicating we are his people, of course God is righteous and just to forgive our sins. They're already paid for. If we say that we have not sinned, comes back to that again. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So we have need for ongoing repentance. But there's cleansing involved. And there's peace and there's joy as we read in the Psalms already. Blessed, happy is the man whose sins are forgiven, right? Um, we also have a properly instructed conscience. Um, and that is that when we repent of our sins, when we own our sins as sins, we are teaching our conscience what God likes and what God does not like. And then our conscience is better suited to help us as we go about in the world. You know, we have a young puppy, which is why my wife is not with us. And we're having to train that puppy. And the puppy is kind of like our flesh. It just wants to run and take the lead and drag us hither and yon, right? It'll take us all over the place. The puppy needs correction and direction. And just like our consciences, we need to say, no, that's not right. And this is right. So we need to instruct our consciences through repentance. Also in Psalm 66, verse 18, we have this aspect of the prayer being heard. There's a negative and a positive. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Of course, if I'm not regarding iniquity in my heart, the Lord will hear, right? So when we repent, we're no longer regarding iniquity in our heart. And that opens the way for us to have our prayer answered. And I'm just thinking here for a moment if I have time to put this in. I think not. All right. Um, I just want to summarize then. Jesus warns us in this passage that we are all sinners. The ones that had the worst calamities were not worse than we are. He warns us that the failure to repent proves our unbelief. He warns us that failure to repent has eternal consequences. He warns us that those consequences are for all sinners. And Jesus holds out the olive branch of grace, bidding us to repent and by inference to believe. So how do we use this teaching from God's word in a practical way in our lives? Well, in one sense, repentance is like taking out the garbage. But it is, in another sense, of course, much more. We must judge sin to be sin, to be corrosive and deadly and, and uh, contaminating, and we need to remove it from our lives. And we must fill the void, not just take out the garbage. We need to bring something in good, right? We must fill the void which that removal creates by filling it with the holy, the sweet, and the praiseworthy. And we could look at Philippians 4, 8, and 9, but after... The instruction is given not to be anxious for anything, but by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known to God, and God will guard our hearts and our minds. He goes on to say, 
These things think upon. He has the whole list of the things that are positive and good. Right? And what is he telling him? You're going to pray. You're going to tell God your anxieties. You're going to pray. God is going to protect your heart and your mind. That's God's side. Your side is, what are you thinking about? What are you putting into your heart? What are you putting into your mind? And if you read that passage, it's all the things that are praiseworthy, of good report, etc. Those are the kinds of things. So in repentance, we don't just turn away from what's bad, but we need to do what's good in place of it. Repentance is the natural and necessary evidence of true saving faith. Jesus, after performing his signs, often said, go and sin no more. And at least warned, sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. All right? We have to remember that faith without works is dead. And while, while repentance may, in fact, be the precursor to faith or in tandem coming with it, still the first work of faith is repentance. And I want to read here... Um, from Ezekiel. Do you think that God is unfair to lay upon... Well, this isn't the quote from Ezekiel. Do you think that God is unfair to lay upon you his holy law to obey, his promise of wrath against all ungodliness, and hold out only one means of escape? Right? That's kind of the question. Do you think that God is unfair laying upon you, laying upon us, his holy law, the promise of wrath for ungodliness, and holding out only one means of escape? We're not the first ones if we think that. But if we think about Ezekiel 18, the Lord reasoning says, Yet the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not fair. O house of Israel, is it not my ways which are fair, and your ways which are not fair? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel. Everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed, and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord. But you see the point. God is not unfair to tell us that he's holy and he's just, and to warn us that sinning against him and continuing in our sins will lead to destruction. It's not unfair, it's loving, even as he reasoned with Israel. Repent, turn away from these things, get a new heart. Why would you perish, right? So that's kind of the the aspect here. Number five, a word of balance needs to be given, lest I should be misunderstood. And I think I mentioned this earlier. Um, We cannot earn salvation by repentance. We need to perish that thought. We don't want to replace faith in the Lord Jesus Christ with some list of rules of do's and don'ts, even repentance, though repentance is crucial. The true believer knows that they can never deserve anything but God's wrath. And repentance unto life is a spirit-given grace that demonstrates that only the blood of Jesus can cleanse from sins, only the righteous life of Jesus can satisfy the law's demands, and the only thing that repentance does is revealed that the believer loves God and belongs to God. That love means that the believer hates what God hates, and the believer loves what God loves. The final word then to the believer and the unbeliever alike, we could turn to Acts 17, uh, if you would, for a moment. I'm going to read verses 29 to 31.
Acts 17, verse 29. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devisings. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So our God commands each and every one of us and everyone else on planet earth to repent. And the reason that he's commanding us to repent is because there is coming a great and terrible day of the Lord when the Lord Jesus will come and judge the living and the dead. And he's told us it's coming, and he's proven it to us by raising Jesus from the dead. Those who are in Christ say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But the rest ought to cower in fear and flee and seek him while he may be found. Proverbs 29.1 He who is often rebuked and hardens his neck will suddenly be destroyed and that without remedy. Reject Christ, reject repentance, and you will be destroyed, and when it comes, it will be without remedy. Psalm 86.5, For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant to mercy to all those who call upon you. What a wonderful word from our God. God is good. God is ready to forgive. God is abundant in mercy to all those who call upon him. None of us needs to go to hell. None of us needs to die in our sin. None of us needs a judgment. God is holding out the offer of salvation. It is a free gift. You can't buy it. You can't hoodwink God into it. But nevertheless, his hand is outstretched. And in it is the most incredible gift that you will never repent, rightly used, of having. Well, may God give us grace to trust our God, to turn from our sins, and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, let's pray.